0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, we'll be looking at verses 7 through 15 this morning. And as you're turning there, I I want you to think of a time in your life where you greatly offended your parents. Maybe it's recently. Maybe it was a long time ago. Um but you greatly offended them and you received some form of discipline. I realize the, the spectrum of responses may span from something of neglect, um, indifference, to even, unfortunately, physical abuse for some. And For some of you, the punishment might have been so harsh, it overshadowed the offense that you can't even remember what you did wrong discipline is one of the most difficult tasks for parents to do well. Every parent in here knows that is true. If you have children, surely you can think of a time when you disciplined out of anger. Uh, Maybe you overreacted to a relatively minor offense, or maybe you failed to take the time to explain yourself, or maybe you refused to follow up with your child for reconciliation afterwards. And so when we think of judgment— When we think of punishment, when we think of discipline, sometimes we have some false notions wrapped up with that idea. we, We carry some baggage into this concept. But as we begin to consider the final judgment, it's important to begin with this, that God's judgment is fully just. And he always disciplines his children in love. Hebrews 12 teaches us that. And so at Christ's return, everyone will stand before him to face a judgment according to what they have done. And so we need to unpack that a little bit. All right, we've been looking at the, the sixth of seven cycles in the book of Revelation, and we'll come to the end of that sixth cycle. We've seen the seven churches uh, in the first three chapters, we looked at the seven seals in chapters four through seven, and then in chapters eight through 11, the seven trumpets. Trumpets. Uh, then there was some spiritual conflict that was described in chapters 12 through 14. And then we saw seven bowls in 15 through 16, and now beginning in chapter 17 through 20, we've seen the final judgment, a description of that, and it's been building, right? As the as the harlot, Babylon, was destroyed, and then as the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire, then here we come to the last section of this uh, cycle, which includes the final defeat of Satan and also the final judgment. And then we'll conclude this book in the last cycle, chapters 21 and 22, with the final reward but this question for our passage this morning is, is how ought we live in light of, God, of Christ's return to judge the world? So we consider these things, how should we live today in light of that truth? And so let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it before we read it. Heavenly Father, we do look to you each time we open your word to give us eyes to see and ears to hear this truth. Soften our hearts that we would respond in obedience to your word, that we would not just be hearers only, but we would be doers of your word, or that this wouldn't just be a fruitless exercise, but your spirit might speak through your word to your servants who are listening, and that we would be changed even as we sit under the preaching. Or may you be glorified in all of it. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So read with me Revelation 20, verses 7 through 15. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened." Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, at the end of this cycle, we now have the fullest display, combined with all the previous um, episodes that we've seen of this final judgment, we now have the fullest display of that judgment. But before we get there, the, the final judgment of humans, we see the final defeat of Satan in verses 7 through 10. So at the end of the the thousand years, which we've said is this present age from the ascension of Christ, or really from the resurrection of Christ, even inaugurating in his ministry, but from the resurrection proper to uh, his second coming is this present age. And that encompasses the thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released from his bondage and he'll immediately begin to do the very thing that he was prevented from doing by his bondage. Remember in verse 3, we saw uh, last week that he was thrown into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Well, now we see him doing that. In verse 8, I, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. So these nations are called Gog and Magog. And he's gathering these nations together for the final battle. They make up this vast army that is like the sand of the sea. And there is obviously no small number of opposition at this point. Uh, And so if this battle is taking place after Christ's second coming— and after his earthly millennial reign as premillennialists suggest then it's hard to understand where all of these unbelievers have come from where all of these people who who satan is able to gather up for this final battle where did they come from if satan was bound throughout the millennial reign and only believers entered into the millennial reign well then There's an awful lot of apostasy that's taking place during Christ's triumphal reign. And it doesn't really make sense with the context. The the names Gog and Magog refer to a land and people mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And over the years, people have speculated that this is a reference to the Goths, uh, to the Muslims, to the Turks, and um, I could keep going on with the list, most recently, or well, maybe not even most recently, but a recent occurrence of this, um, uh, of kind of pointing Gog and Magog to some modern manifestation is to say that it's a representation of Russia. That was how Lindsay, he really popularized the idea that Meshek and Tubal, which are not mentioned here in Revelation, but if you go back to Ezekiel 38 and 39, they're mentioned several times there in relationship to Gog and Magog. And he would say Meshach and Tubal are really hidden references to the cities Moscow and Tobolsk. Moscow coming into existence um, in 1000 AD and Tobolsk coming into existence somewhere around 1590 AD. So... If we read according to that interpretation, then nothing prior to 1,000 would have ever made sense. No believer could have really understood this passage properly, because those cities didn't even exist for them to make that reference point. Um, he, he adds to his argument that there's a mention of Rosh in the Hebrew language. If you read the Hebrew, it says Rosh. Well, that sounds a lot like Russia, doesn't it? So he uses that, and for someone who is writing to a very anxious America during the height of the Cold War, what do you think the impact of that suggestion had? It, it got a lot of people fired up thinking we are right now on the doorstep of the final judgment. It is about to take place. This, we are gearing up for the final battle, and a lot of people bought that book and ate it up. In reality, Rosh is simply the Hebrew word for prince. Meshach and Tubal were actual cities north of Assyria at the time of Ezekiel's prophecy. And so the suggestion that these names of ancient towns pointed to cities that would not come into existence for 1,000 years and even 1,500 years, based solely upon the fact that they sound similar, is to say the least hard to swallow today. Um, what hope did any saint have who lived prior to the Cold War of ever making that connection? And that's why you don't have that interpretation prior to the Cold War. So in reality, we know from ancient Jewish literature that Gog and Magog actually became proverbial names for evil nations it just became a way of speaking of all evil nations who would be gathering together in opposition to the church and against God. So John's original audience would have understood that Satan was saying these nations will be gathering together, that Satan will gather every rebellious nation from all directions. That's, that's the four corners of the earth. And there'll be Gog and Magog. They're, they're the nation's that back in Revelation 16, verse 16, are the kings of the whole world who assemble at Armageddon. It's parallel. It's, this, it's the same idea. They're coming for final battle against Christ and his army. And so this is, the, um, I think, the, the proper reading of the text. In, in John's vision, this great army then surrounds the camp of the saints and their city, in verse 9. And the odds, obviously, are, are stacked against the saints. They're outnumbered. But the Lord rescues them by consuming their foes with fire from heaven, much like he rescued Israel from the hands of Egypt, right at the Red Sea. Outnumbered, odds stacked against them, backs against the water, and a, an a army of chariots and horses barreling down against them. And the Lord uh, uh, rescues them by flooding the army of the Egyptians. All right, so he consumes their foes now, in this case, with fire from heaven. Satan is then cast into the lake of fire where he joins the beast and the false prophet to experience conscious, eternal torment. It's described in verse 10. Now, Satan is a spiritual being, so there is a spiritual component to this suffering that's reflected in this text. Uh, This suffering is is not only reserved for Satan and demons, but for all who reject Christ and who worship the beast, as described in chapter 14, as we saw in chapter 19, verse 20, and as we see at the very end of this passage in verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So it's the, the same destination for all who are opposed to Christ and his purposes, so now, while Satan is still bound, now is your opportunity right, to turn to Christ. When Satan's restraint is released, there will be swift deception and a gathering against God's people that will take place. So the gospel of grace is offered to you now. Right? Now is the day to, re- to, to turn to him, repent, and believe in Jesus as your Savior. Because his victory was achieved for all who placed their trust in him. And although Christ defeated Satan on the cross, it is his return that achieves the culminating effect of that defeat. And so in light of that, is that how you live this life? Do you live in light of Christ's victory? Are you confident that the spiritual forces of evil have really been waging a suicidal mission? that there is absolutely no hope of their victory. These are questions about the assurance of your salvation. And John wrote his first epistle to believers in order that they might know that they have eternal life. 1 John 5.13. And 1 John's all about having assurance, having knowledge of God, and knowing that he is victorious. Here in Revelation, God bolsters that assurance by conveying this vision of the victory that Christ will conclude at his second coming. And so following the the final defeat of Satan, John sees the final judgment of everyone in verses 11 through 15. The final judgment of everyone. Christ is seated on the throne, and he takes up all space so that earth and sky flee, Uh fled away. In in other words, there is no escaping his judgment. The throne encompasses the entire world, the entire earth. There's no one that will be able to hide from his presence. All the dead appear before the throne in verse 12. And so it's a, a legal scene where books of evidence are opened as well as the book of life. We learn that the dead are judged according to the evidence contained in the books, specifically what they had done, says that phrase multiple times here. This, first of all, is a representation of a universal judgment. This is not a judgment that takes place for believers and then the millennial reign a thousand years and then another judgment at the end of that thousand years for unbelievers. That's not taught anywhere in Scripture. So this is a one single universal judgment, and and believers... We'll be there too. 2 Corinthians five ten says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So all the sea and the realm of the dead were judged according to their works. In verse thirteen. And the word there for what they had done is literally ergon in the Greek, which is translated works. And if you read the same term in Matthew 16, verse 27 there, you find it translated deeds. It's all the same concept. Christ is seated on his throne to judge the living and the dead according to their works. For believers, that includes the sins that they have committed as well as the good works that they have done. That is a consistent representation of the New Testament and the Old Testament, right? Of of God's word. That believers will face this judgment and they'll be judged both for the sins that they have committed as well as the good works they have done. Because believers are united to Christ we can do good works. These works never merit pardon for sin, nor do they contribute anything to the grounds of our salvation. However, they necessarily flow from genuine justification. Works are the evidence of a true and lively faith. They are the fruit of That, Paul says in Romans 6.22, that leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And so according to Calvin, it is faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Good works always accompany genuine faith. That's what James tells us chapter 2, verse 18. So the believer's ability to do good works comes from the Spirit of Christ. They don't drum it up themselves. The work of Christ's grace in us produces the fruit of good works, which Christ then rewards, even though they remain tainted by the impurities and imperfections of our fallen nature. And so Christ is the foundation upon which we build our good works. Works that survive the test of fire will be rewarded according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and in proportion to the increase that they are produced, they'll receive that reward, according to Luke chapter 19. So Paul says this to Timothy he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And in a, a, a Ligonier panel discussion, R.C. Sproul pointed out a quote from Augustine who commented on this passage, Second uh, Timothy 4. And Augustine said this, The Lord He says, will award me a crown, being a just judge. But with the reward, you do nothing. With the work, you don't act alone. The crown simply comes to you from him. The work, on the other hand, comes from you, but only with him helping. To Paul, fighting the good fight, completing the course, Keeping the faith, he paid back good things. But for what good things? For ones he himself had given. Or wasn't it by his gift that you were able to fight the good fight? So the only things of yours that we know were prepared for you by yourself are evil. So when God crowns your merits, he is not crowning anything but his own gifts. Or as David Strain puts it in an article in Table Talk, Our Call to Faithfulness, he says this, Christ rewards us for the fruit of his own great work for us at the cross and in us by his Spirit. So no name will be found written in the book of life that is not also sanctified, that is not also set apart by Christ and his spirit. The ongoing work of sanctification, the ongoing growth that we experience is an operation of God's spirit applying Christ's death and resurrection. As the Westminster Larger Catechism 75 says, that they more and more die unto sin and live or and rise unto newness of life. Okay, so that's the idea of the mortification of the flesh And the vivification of this new life that we have. So Christ's suffering on behalf of the saints includes not only his suffering the penalty for their wicked deeds, but also the imperfections and defilement associated with their righteous deeds. That's why I say when we repent, we don't just repent of our sins, we repent of our works that are defiled. And so it's because of what Christ has accomplished in his perfect life and in his substitutionary death on the cross that those who believe in him can stand before the great white, the, the great white throne confident of their acquittal. Uh, Romans 8 1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't stand before him trembling. First John 4:17 says, "By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world." He sees us in His Son. First Corinthians 11:32, "But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So it's out of love. Well, in verses 14 and 15, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, followed by all who are not found in the book of life. And death and Hades is a metonymy, which is for, it basically is a container for a, a, a term that reflects on what it contains. Right? So what, what is death and Hades? It's, it's namely all the deceased who did not enjoy the first resurrection. It's those who did not go to heaven when they died. And for their, from their temporary bonds in death and Hades, unbelievers now enter into their permanent bonds in the lake of fire at the final judgment. Conversely, saints are then ushered into the new heavens and the new earth, as we'll see when we conclude um, in the last cycle in the coming weeks. So this idea of judgment is a terrifying prospect for God's enemies but it's an assuring comfort to believers. This is how the Heidelberg Catechism 52 puts it. What comfort is it to thee that Christ shall come again to judge the quick and the dead? Answer, that in all my sorrows and persecutions with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven, who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. And that's our comfort. So we don't come to this judgment in fear. Anthony Hokuma says, believers have nothing to fear from the judgment though the realization that they will have to give an account for everything they have done, said, and thought should be for them constant incentive to diligent fighting against sin, conscientious Christian service, and consecrated living. It's, it's the same truth that comforts us that also encourages us to persevere in this life. All right, so that we won't stand there with nothing to show for our life that all of our works won't just be burned up and we'll get through as if through fire with nothing to show. We won't lose our salvation, but we will lose the reward. That's, That's the plain teaching of Scripture. Believers can look forward to Christ's return because the final judgment will not bring condemnation but vindication. Our guilt and our shame has been fully covered by the perfect sacrifice of our Lord upon the cross. And this is the message of the gospel that everyone needs to hear. And it's the gospel that saves enemies and transforms them into saints. It's this gospel that we must boldly proclaim to our lost loved ones and neighbors. Right, when you stand before the great white throne, you will either stand with confidence that your sins have been fully pardoned or you will tremble before the Lord you rejected. And do not remain indifferent about the free offer of the gospel while you still have time to respond. I turn to the only one who can forgive you and reward you. The same Lord who removes your sin also crowns his own gift to you that you might produce fruitful ministry for his glory. And so let's look to him for help in doing that even today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do have this confidence, even as we read of a, of a fearful and terrifying scene that the unbeliever faces at the, the great white throne judgment. We know that we will stand and give account ourselves, but we also know that we stand as pardoned in Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. Even the sins that that affect or infect our best works have also been forgiven in Christ so that our works are even accepted and rewarded by him. So we can have confidence as we stand there. We can have hope and Lord, may that be what encourages us even to persevere in this life, to think about these things, to meditate upon them, that we would honor and glorify you in everything that we think, everything that we say, and everything that we do. We recognize that we will not be perfect. We cannot be perfect in this life. And yet, we should consider these things. that We might, might be walking by faith, by your spirit and not depending upon our flesh. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.